Welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you advice and insights for your writing. I'm Andy Chamberlain, I'm a writer and creative writing coach, and in each episode, we'll be exploring an aspect of the craft together. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you can also find out about the Creative Writers Tool Belt Handbook, which takes all the best advice and insights from the early episodes of the podcast and distills them into one volume. I hope this podcast is helpful to you on your writing journey. If you do find it useful, please do subscribe and consider leaving a review as well wherever you downloaded it. So thank you for joining me and here's this episode. Welcome to episode 165 of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt. My guest for this episode is the author James Blatch. Some of you will know James as one half of the team who presents the hugely popular self-publishing show with Mark Dawson. Now, actually, I owe James and Mark an apology as I incorrectly refer to the self-publishing show in this episode as the self-publishing podcast, a name it hasn't had for a couple of years now. So if you want to find out more about what's happening in the world of self-publishing from James and Mark, it's the self-publishing show that you need to search for. James is a former radio and television journalist. He has worked for the BBFC, that's the British Board of Film Classification, the organisation here in the UK that decides what certificate a film gets. James's family has a long relationship with the Royal Air Force. His father was a test pilot with the RAF and James has a passion for planes which he carries over into the subject of his first novel called The Final Flight, which was published this year, 2021, and which is set on an RAF base in the 1960s. In this episode, we talk about respecting the material that you're working with for your novel, the challenge of marketing your first book when it's the only book that you've got out there, and the perennial importance of building an email list. I would also say I'm aware that not all of you listening to this want to self-publish your work. You want to get a traditional publishing contract, and that's a good aim to have. But I would suggest that all of the writing advice and a good part of the marketing advice you hear in this episode and on the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast generally is useful and applicable to you. Even if you do get a traditional publishing contract, and congratulations if you do, you should still be thinking about how you can market your books and your brand. And in particular, as it applies to this episode, how important it is for you to build your own email list, however you're published. So I had a great conversation with James. I do hope you enjoy listening to it and you find it useful. Here it is. So James, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. It's great to have you as our guest today. My pleasure. So I want to fo- focus first of all on you and your story, um, your upbringing. I think you've you've done quite a lot of things in your life, and you've been to kind of quite a lot of places. So I wonder if you could just spend a minute or two telling us about that. Yeah, I seem to change career about every decade, so <laughs> which is which is worrying because that means I'm coming up to my next change. But I, I'm probably not planning that again. Maybe that should be retirement. Yeah, I mean the truth is I didn't start particularly well. I didn't work very hard at school. I had a slightly disrupted school um well my school I think I had four changes of primary school in six years and uh between three different schools never settled fell out of school not doing anything with it with one O level I think and so and so that's why I kind of had a slightly disrupted career I think probably had I gone down the university route or or followed my father into the REF which was something I kind of woke up to later in life 
um, yeah. it would have been different. But I became a computer programmer, which I hated. And um, <laughs> it was lucrative, but extraordinarily dull. Uh, and I kind of woke up properly, matured a little bit in my mid-20s and thought, what do I want to do? And I decided that I wanted to work for the BBC as a producer or presenter or reporter or something. And so I, I started making the tea and coffee at my local radio station. Eventually, after two years of graft, got myself a job there. And um, and that was quite quick for me. I sort of spent probably 12 years at the BBC in total freelance and then and then in staff. And I, I got promoted quite quickly and ended up presenting Look East, which is our regional news magazine program here in fact i think you're in the same part of the world aren't you? Uh, yeah you're not far away from me because so uh, i'm based in cambridge you're based in huntingdon well gomanchester yeah just up yeah. the uh the yeah eighth, so not eighth too eighth far between. away yes so i did that um really enjoyed it and was on the cusp really of, of moving up to net- network tv i just started to do my first reporter shifts in london and uh, i think at the same time i just got a little bit bored or cynical or combination of the two of the news cycle of the kind of short term news cycle that we go and I still am I still read the news today and I think well this story comes up every year or this story is always treated in the same way yeah and at the time I was getting into foreign uh, affairs and defense and military stuff and and we we got into this cycle of, of car bombs in Kabul and not Kabul so much then but Iraq and how many people it killed and then we waited for the next one to happen and I thought there's got to be more to news reporting than this and what I should have done I think looking back is I should have cast around in the massive organization the BBC is and found a documentary or longer form uh, program to work on and tapped on their door and said look I've I've got news experience but I wanted I want to be on the same story for more than eight hours and uh, I didn't do that. Instead, I got tempted into applying to be a film examiner, which is a really wonderfully yeah. wonderful job yeah. <laughs> at the yeah, BBFC. Was... So yeah, I applied for that, along with, I think they said they had 1,200 applications for the uh, six <laughs> six jobs they had. But um, I got got down to the final, tried to negotiate a sort of part-time, so I'd ha- hedge my bets about leaving the BBC, but they said it's either full-time or nothing, and I... I chucked the towel in and joined the BBFC and watched films for a living and met two friends, Mark Dawson and John Dyer, uh, whilst I was there. I spent seven years there. They, Mark spent a bit longer, John probably about the same. Um, and by the time I came to leave, John Dyer had started a video production company, which I became part of and joined as my next thing. And Mark Dawson had started selling his own novels online, which we didn't realize we would all come together again at some point. But at the time was just an interesting side. An exotic idea, isn't it really? Yeah. Well, I can remember it happening. I remember, I remember Mark used to be a novel. We all knew he had a couple of novels out and I read one of them actually, which I quite enjoyed, but uh, he was very kind of cynical about the whole thing at that point. It hadn't really worked. And then another friend of ours, uh, called Jim had started making money uploading his books to Kindle, and this is probably two thousand and eight, nine, ten around there. Probably yeah. nine, I think it came out, didn't it? Yeah. Um, and that immediately, I could see the cogs whirring in Mark's mind, and he immediately started working on this rather kind of uh, quite good but lengthy um, noir book set in Soho, where we were working. Uh, and anyway, the, the rest is history. People might be familiar with Mark, but he started um, this sort of genre fiction series with John Milton, this washed up MI6 agent. And uh, he's become prolific and one of the best known and highest selling indie authors in the country. And it was 
obvious after a couple of years, he wanted to do more than just be the author. He wanted to be the person to kind of spearhead the um, the revolution of indie authors. So he, yes. John and I got together and created this company built around, and community built around trying to get people to, uh, well, enable people to write and publish if they wanted to do that. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come to that a little bit later, I think, because I do want to mention uh, your role with the self-publishing podcast. And uh, many people listening to this will have, will have heard of Mark Dawson and indeed you. Uh, from that source and, and also from from your book and so I want to talk about your uh, writing progress I think perhaps you've answered this in part so when did you decide that you wanted to do some writing uh, and this was genuinely unrelated to me knowing Mark or thinking about Mark's book it was completely unrelated to that mm. um, it was just simply that I think I've always been a busy person I've always wanted to be a busy person and the BBFC is uh wonderful and really enjoyable and I love the debates we had about how many um how many swear words you could have at 12 and all the rest of it and, and we brought all this stuff to a meeting every week but it wasn't ultimately satisfying every aspect of, of me and I wanted to do other things and so yeah. I started to write a novel just because I had for the first time since BBC work you to death the whole time I had time uh, on my hands I had a commute in the morning actually had some downtime during the day because when you're sitting watching wrestling and stuff you know you only have to keep half an eye on it I shouldn't really say that out loud um and it was the first of November 2010 and I saw a tweet about NaNoWriMo which I'd never heard of before and within five minutes of reading that tweet from a friend's husband who worked in the building I thought well I'll do that yeah. And I didn't even read anything about NaNoWriMo. I didn't know it was an organized thing. I thought it was just a hashtag. And so I opened a Word document and I started writing a book that became my first published book, The Final Flight. Yeah. I had started a books before. I had started a similar kind of military aviation book when I was in my 20s. And I showed it to my dad and he just rolled his eyes and didn't say very much. And uh, that was the only feedback I got. <laughs> and so that went, <laughs> went, went into a drawer. Um, and I may have started, I did a bit of writing at the BBC, but I don't think I started a novel since. So, so I, I wrote that and I actually completed NaNoWriMo. I did the 50,000 words and then spent another three months adding another kind of, I think it turned out to be another 50 or 60,000 words, but it was, um, it was a shambolic novel really at that stage. It, it's opened up all sorts of side um, storylines and backstories and it was waffly and and I knew it would require massive fixing I always thought I would do that but I just ran out of steam pretty quickly in 2011 2012 and and then increasingly never never opened the word document and there there it was so it sat there doing nothing for all I for all intents and purposes a retirement project but then when we started working with Mark on on the 101 course in particular sort of foundation course for self-publishing authors he said to me finish your book and then your book can be the example book I use all the way through the course because I need a I need a manuscript yeah, yeah yeah and so he encouraged me to do that and I I I got it out and that was probably ooh, where are we now that was 16 2016 2017 yeah. around then and I pub- that, yeah. yeah I published it in 21 and that yes. I've honestly I found the hardest thing I've done not I mean, people say that a very hard thing I've done in my life was learning how to write a novel even though I had a novel ramshackle thing to start with in fact in a way that made it worse Um, but turning that into a a a readable fairly concise ordered novel was a massive learning experience for me Um, and so and I did it it rather publicly as well through the podcast and so on yeah I guess people could 
you couldn't really just write it and then spring it upon the world, could you? It's kind of like people were following it. But um, I mean, having you know, I've, I've read the final flight and I can see I can see obviously I mean, it's set in the 60s around an RAF base. Um, the RAF is an important part of your life, your family's life. Um, so I can see kind of where some of that inspiration would come from. Um, I, you're talking about it was difficult to write. I wonder if doing was was doing the research for it and pitching it in like 50 years ago or so. Was that part of the difficulty? How how was how did that work out for you doing the research and making sure it was framed in that time period? No, that that was easy bit. My life had really been building up to telling this story and and, and researching it. I. You know, my father joined the Air Force at 16 out of school yeah. in the Isle of Wight in 1947, something like that. And he became a pilot in the early 50s. He joined as a mechanic, actually, became a pilot. By 1960, he was a test pilot. He spent the best part of the 60s up to about 1967 as a test pilot. And then he retired. Now, he says nothing about his career if you don't ask him. I mean, you don't get anything from him. He's typical of that generation. Mm-hmm. But I became, as an adult, increasingly obsessed with with his career or interested in it. And I've got his logbooks, which are absolutely amazing. Can you imagine having a father who had something that you are really interested in? And as part of his job, he had to write down every day what aircraft he flew in, what he was doing with that aircraft, where he went and time. So that's been a goldmine for me. And I produced a nonfiction book for him on his career, tracing the aircraft and and, uh, getting quotes from friends and and so on around the world. So I did that. I knew a lot about the culture of the Air Force just from my time as a BBC reporter. I spent as much time as possible inside squadrons, which I enjoyed and loved. And I got to fly in fast jets and Harriers and Jaguars. And and I flew in whatever transport aircraft they had around the world with them to the Middle East and to the Arctic Circle. And I enjoyed the banter. They enjoyed having me around. They got a bit surprised once I was through the door that I wasn't your kind of typical cynical journalist. I was there for the jollies and I enjoyed the ban- <laughs> enjoyed the bants with them yeah. and read a lot of RAF books. You know, so I remember my dad has this first edition of Fighter Pilots called, written by a guy called Paul Ritchie, but actually his edition, which I've got on the shelf here, is censored because it was published in 1941. Or wow. well, 1940, I think it was the it was months after the Battle of France had finished, just as the Battle of Britain was starting. This guy wrote a diary about what happened in France, yeah. with, and anyone who was still alive, their names were blanked out for sure. security reasons. Yeah, yeah. I, it's interesting that you say, like, the early draft of this book was this kind of sprawling, rambling thing, and you had to kind of whip it into order. So, how did you do that? What was the what was the editing, the whole editing process then for you with the book? I did it the wrong way. The hard way. Or that I sort of looking back, I think everything I did contributed to my experience and know-how of how to eventually do it. So it wasn't yeah. wasted, but I rewrote it a lot. Um, so I rewrote it. Uh, what did I do? I wrote it again the first time. It became absolutely unwieldy. It became it was yeah, so I wrote it. I wrote it the first time. I started again, effectively. I don't think I copy and pasted any of it. I mean, I just wrote it from scratch because I knew the story inside out. Yeah, sure. It was easier. I stripped out quite a lot of the all the backstory and the family stuff I didn't need. But I overwrote what people were thinking rather than it was, you know, yeah. it, was, it was a real tell don't show version of the book. And that was 196,000 words by the time I got to the end of that. But mm. Okay. Actually, that was a very important part of the process because that was the pro- part where uh, a particular development editor, Jenny, got me to think about 
the themes and why I was writing the book, what it meant and, and making sure that that was central to it. So when I wrote down what people were thinking, although that would never make it into the final, it would have been an awful book if I'd left that in there. It was an important part of the process for me to do it. Yeah. Then I rewrote it a third time, but probably more than that in reality, but a third time. Oh yeah, sorry, there was one in between those. Before I did the 196,000 word, I did a 50,000 word version of it, which was incredibly breakneck speed, which was a misunderstanding by me of what page turning meant. <laughs> and this this was so, so fast, it made no sense really. And an editor yeah. looked at that and was very polite about it, but I could see her thinking this is crazy. Um, and then I did the long version and then I rewrote the long version as a show don't tell version of that and that's the final book okay I mean it sounds like you've done all the suffering so we can learn the lessons almost just (laughs) yeah Um, Yeah, that that was part of it which was a good thing to do and I blogged the journey and um yeah and talked about it and interviewed the editors on on the podcast as we went along now you 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 kind of mentioned briefly there how somebody kind of made you think about why you really wanted to write the book and what were the important things in it so how important is that process, do you think, for writers generally? How, how, what's, what's the deal around that? So I think it's a really, really good process. And it's important. It can be important. And the reason why a book is better than it, 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 sh- it could be, if there's a strong thematic reason for you writing a book. And, and Jenny drew it out of me. The reason this story fell out of me in 2010 without too much planning is because I'd been for decades mulling over what happened to my father why he wasn't demonstrative why he he didn't Mm. talk about his past Mm. why he didn't say i love you and hug people like the way i do with my kids today and the conclusion i came to was that he you know what he was a product of what had happened to him his father was in the first world war and came back from that cantankerous and difficult probably what we would describe as trauma post-trauma today Yeah. yeah and he he routinely lost colleagues all the way through his RAF career, especially as a test pilot, you know, they were there at breakfast, they're killed in the afternoon, and then they go flying again the next day, or even after that crash in the afternoon, they fly. And, and he had that, I think he got battered down emotionally yeah. to the point where his protection was, was to shut down. We also had a yeah. family tragedy. I lost my brother when I was 12. So he was in his forties, which is, you know, the most yeah. brutal thing to happen to a parent. And yeah. my mum, mum always said that was the last vestiges of of him when that happened so this story is a bit of a fantasy for a a service child like me uh who's a product of that it's a fantasy because the main character is someone my dad's age at that time 30 yes yeah but he he, something happens to him where he's going down that route he's going down the servitude route the head down obey orders you know just just bury the consequences and he suddenly because of events has a choice to make about whether he stands up to that and says, this is wrong, I'm going to do things differently and saves himself and becomes the person who can be demonstrable or whether he carries on. So so that was the story in it. Without me really knowing it was that was what it was, I started writing it. Yeah, Janie was the one who brought that out so that I could explain it to people. And once I'd done that, I was able to make sure the book did tell that story. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it in that, in that context, it is a, it is a very moral story. I think it, it's a it's a kind of without getting too woo woo about it. It's a it's a self awareness story, isn't it? Or it's it's a, it's a challenge. The the like the main character has what well, main characters have challenges, moral challenges about what how they're going to live, what values they're going to live by, what are they going to say and not say. And I I guess I can certainly I can completely understand in the context of reading that book 
why that would have been difficult conversations and difficult choices for them to make. Yeah, and I didn't want, you know, one thing I didn't want the book to be was a damning and lambasting of the service culture of stiff upper lip and getting on with it. I wanted the book hopefully to be that that stiff upper lip culture does not come without a price. But I don't think it's as simple as saying it's wrong because actually we do require soldiers, sailors and airmen, and you know, obviously female I include there. We do mm. require them to get on with a job that's pretty unpleasant and pretty nasty. And yeah, yeah. one of the ways you're going to deal with that is push it aside at the time and get yeah. on with stuff. That what I'm saying is it's a complex world. It comes without consequences. Not I don't want to be, I'm not cynical about it. I think it's difficult. It's a it's a it's it's a difficult thing to deal with. And we do end up in this day and age dealing with the fallout of it with a slightly more aware that it's happening than than my dad's generation where you you just literally shut up. So I want to kind of switch tack now slightly. I mean, anybody who sees the cover of that book, if they look at it, the final flight, I mean, the thing that struck me was like the really bold colours. It's a great design. There's a great bit of blurb on it. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you approached the whole issue of getting a, getting the right design and getting the right cover, getting the cover right and the blurb right for it. The cover was the easy bit because we've got a friend called Stuart Bache who's part of the SBF community and actually is in business with us on the publishing side. And Stuart is uh, a designer who thinks, uh, he's got a very experienced cover designer from, from the trad industry. And yeah. he thinks a lot about why covers work um, and when they don't work. And in that context, he did my cover and just did a fantastic job with it just did I couldn't I couldn't have envisaged that I did you know I learned quite quickly with someone like Stuart is is not to hem them in with your ideas I mean he's as long as they understand what the book is and crucially understand the genre of the book it matters less that they understand the details of the book it's crucial that they understand the genre of the book they you know he will do a good job and cover designers who work like him will do a good job. So he did this, yeah, the RAF Roundel, the kind of target people are familiar with, a, a blue wash. And uh, we had a pilot standing in the middle of it, looking a little bit kind of ponderous. Uh, unfortunately, there was a story behind that. The first pilot um, was a stock image from Shutterstock or someone. And unfortunately, he was wearing the wrong clothing. My dad said straight away, that's World War II clothing. It was a modern picture, but he was wearing World War II clothing, the old <laughs> May West. So yeah. then we then I found um, the collection of RAF photographs, went to the Imperial War Museum, and you can access them online. So I found a few of those. There were yeah. loads that were perfect, uh, and they're sort of turned away from camera. So I got a couple of those. But the IWM wouldn't give permission for use. Uh, in fact, there's a little bit of a bugbear of mine is that they're, they've got this massive collection that was gifted to them by the government, taken by the government, you know, the taxpayer funded it, and they won't really yeah. release them for use apart from as the photographs by themselves. So... If you're doing a magazine article about the RAF, you may get permission, but if you want to use the image for a commercial purpose, like a book, they'll almost certainly say no. So those photographs are not seeing the light of day. Um, contrast that, by the way, to NASA, who's all whose photographs are available to anybody to use for any purpose, including commercial. And that means those mass- NASA pictures have become really embedded in our mind because they're yeah. everywhere. They're quite ridiculous, so aren't they? Yeah. yeah, so I think it's a mistake. And if I could be bothered one day, I'll, um, I'll write to somebody about it and get them to. <laughs> at the very least, I said to them, you should have a clear policy. They couldn't even produce a policy for me to say this is, this is the criteria. They don't even have that. Anyway, so... 
in the end, Muggins here had to buy all this stuff off eBay, which was a fun thing to do. So I now have a complete kit of genuine 1960s fighter pilot oh, or, wow. or, or jet pilot stuff, dress up in it and get photographed by um uh by a photographer up in lincolnshire so we spent the day doing that so that's actually me on the front cover but that is you that is, is me it? now Fantastic. yeah well you can't walking away from camera but um that's a that's a that's a nice story actually i think so so it's i i, I would you know i wouldn't have guessed I, I just thought that was like a kind of image you'd found somewhere but i think there's an interesting point there about attention to detail so by implication in what you've said you you've obviously taken quite a high you know set the bar pretty high in terms of attention to detail so was was that really that important to you and yeah really important to me because although my book if it's going to be commercially successful and it's quite difficult to be you know to make a lot of money with one book as an indie author but if there's a series of books it, they'll be commercially successful the success won't rely on XREF people reading it. It will rely on people who read thrillers reading it. So from that point of view, it doesn't matter. But I do know that lots of XREF people will read this, and I hope they will read it. And it matters more than perhaps it should to me that I don't get emails from them afterwards saying, I enjoyed your book, but... Now, yeah. I did get, even though even though I went to great efforts to research a lot of things, and I actually visited the Vulcan bomber, which if you're... Is this going to be on video, Andy, or is this just no, audio? No, it's just, it's just an audio it's one. But, okay, you, uh, I mean, you can I see. Use, I might use the picture of you with your Vulcan bomber at the back there. There you go. So you can see behind me is a Vulcan, um, which my father flew. In fact, that is one of the ones he flew, that serial. But um, So I went up and visited the, the last flying one up in, in Doncaster, and I spent the day with them doing a lot of research. So I've got a sense of the smell and the, and the environment and what it felt like in the, in the cockpit. So I got all of that as much as I could write. I still made one or two mistakes, which I've been grateful for the emails to point out um, uh, since, and I've slowly corrected them. But yeah, really important for me. Mm. I think it should be anyway for anyone. I mean, it, it is for Mark. Mark was annoying, annoyed himself once by putting a safety catch on a Glock, and somebody you know emailed him who sort of, who owns guns in America says Glocks famously don't have safety catches, and it's annoying to get make that sort of mistake. And I think. Yeah. You should you should get it right. Also, it's fun, isn't it, Andy? That aspect of uh, writing, going off into rabbit holes online. Oh yeah, things. I mean it's it's fun but lethal. Uh, in yeah. the sense that um, I know, like one of the books I did, um, so my, my science fiction book I wrote, and I spent two hours one evening and came up with three words. Yeah, <laughs> from the name of a door to the front of an uh, uh, of a telescope, right? Installation somewhere. Um, and and I kind of I willed myself into thinking this was time well spent. I did my research <laughs> and I got, and I was happy with those three. But it it's just it it is a rabbit hole. But it is, I mean, I, I one of the episodes in my podcast I talk about um, research in the context of magpies and compost heaps. And research is like doing research is like a compost heap. So there's a bunch of stuff in there and it'll all mulch down and it's all kind of there. And, and the writer as the magpie comes along and occasionally just digs, might dig something shiny out. And, and that, that shiny thing, it, it's in amongst a bunch of other stuff that you've spent hours, days, weeks putting together. But that shiny thing is the thing you need. And I don't think you can, I think if you do the research and you respect the material, and I want to come back to that with you in a moment, I think that does come through. So for example, when you were talking about um, you wanted to be respectful of the culture, 
with uh, of you know the kind of RAF culture without without kind of idolizing it necessarily but actually the book is better for it because mm. because you've kind of got that tension right between you know it, it's not cynicism it's not Id- idolizing it it's kind of presenting it as it is with these real people. yeah um and i think that's a i think that issue around res- i mean you know you can come back to me and tell, tell me about this i think respecting the material you're using and respecting the context can often make the book better yeah no definitely and i think i think getting that right was more important in, in getting the terminology of the aircraft right although yeah. that was that's what i'll get picked up on but getting that getting the 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 you know, we could use the word banter, which has a lot of cynicism attached to it today, but actually is an important part of being in the armed forces, the police and other uh, organisations. And it is is quite a good coping mechanism, I think. So a bit of black humour and getting that right, which I got from being in that environment. And one, you know, one thing I got from there, which I, uh, I remember I was introduced to a new station commander, RF Wittering, when I was a BBC guy. And I knew the previous station commander really well, got on really well with him. And he was going on to senior things, which was good, but annoying that a big, important frontline station on our patch was losing them. this friend of mine who would phone yes. me up yeah. and say, look, you should know about this. And But he kindly introduced me to the new guy, to David Horde, who'd come from being equerry to the Duke of Edinburgh and was a lovely guy. And I sat and we had a lunch together and I ch- chatted to him and and Chris was very good at saying, look, James is, you know, trustworthy, but he's fair, he's fair. He won't, you know, he won't roll over, but he's somebody you can talk to. And that was very good. A week later, I was at the base uh, because they had an accident. And I drove up to the base thinking, well, this is the test really for David is what he's going to be like on a bad day, yeah. Yeah. Um, not a good day. And I got yeah. taken through the back with all the other journalists stuck in the car park. I was pulled onto base and told by the um, OC ops, David's dead. Um, and the accidents had happened up north at Barnard Castle. He'd gone in in his Harry at 500 miles an hour. That was it. It was instant. And they were recovering from that in the afternoon. He said, we're about to go public with it. Do you have any advice for us? And I gave him a quick chat about what yeah. questions they might get. Yeah. But as I left, we stayed there. We did our lives, did our reporting on this tragedy. Um, awful, awful day for the base. As I left, I could see the doors to the mess open, the bar and I could see and hear the laughter and the place was packed. Everyone from every quarter of the station was in the bar mm. getting drunk. And that's mm. how they do that. That's yeah. how they do it. On a day when, if, if you're in our work environment, in the BBC, someone be killed in a road accident, God forbid. I can't imagine us all going to the pub and, and drinking, uh, but it was something they did and they made sure they did it. And that's in the book. Um, I wanted that. It, yeah. had left quite an impression on me. Yeah, and, and and in fact, it is in the book. So there's 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 quite a strong thread through your book of you know the mess, the bar as a place where people go, and it's it's an important social space, and and, and the way people behave with each other, and who's talking to who, and yeah. So I guess that's it's that kind of attention to detail, I suppose, that that makes a book. And it doesn't you know it doesn't that doesn't just apply to a to a military book. I think any if you're writing in any genre, yeah, collecting the material and the attention to detail. So I want to I want to come on to uh, the subject of marketing the book then, um, and I, it's it's interesting for me because you you I think had a particular challenge which a lot of authors have, which is you have one book, um, and I think a lot of you know, particularly um, people that are independent authors, they go through that one book pain 
which is that so many of the, the kind of things that you can do to promote a book are in the context of a series or a number of books or all this kind of thing. So how, how have you tackled that challenge? Yeah, so the, the most important thing I'm doing for marketing of that book is writing the next one. So that does, right. you know, that does address that and, and there is no way around it. You will, of course, find the people, the breakout people who have this massive hit with one book. Um, sometimes even when they've got a big series, it's one book that does it for them. But um, for most people, including me, that's not going to be the case. Now, I have marketed this book. I, In fact, to this day, I'm running, I think I'm running £10 a day worth of Facebook ads at the moment, just upped it slightly. And for the first month or two, I think I probably spent, I can't remember, three or £400 on, on Facebook ads that first month. And it's bumbled along with some really hard work on targeting and hard work on getting good imagery and, and copy it bumbles along and either makes a small profit or a small loss each month. So I made about £75 last month, pretty good. Um, I haven't done the figures. I'm doing them weekly now rather than daily. I was slightly obsessive at, at the beginning, but it did make a loss the month before. But it's being read by people. It's being read by about 250 people a month at the, mo- at the minute. Uh, a lot of them are joining a mailing list because I have a really good um capture at the back of the book for people who finish the book uh, I have a very high percentage join my mailing list because it's quite a good added on thing so I'll talk about that if you like a second it's probably the best thing I've done marketing wise and I'm I'm basically building a platform for when I will have the next book and the book after that Um, and it's bit from where I am now where we are with our age it's a bit of a retirement thing it's gone back to that that point where I thought, well, I'll do this when I'm retired. I am now thinking, because I'm very busy with work and I find it very difficult to write for any sustained period of time. But I do know that my retirement, when SPF is no longer you know, bringing money in and, and maybe I've given up few books, that my books may be an important part of our extra bit of money to go on a cruise once a year or something. So I am very, very keen to do it. But uh, yeah, get those books written. Do you want me to mention the the um, the sign up the sort of lead? Yeah, man? I, I I would like you to mention that and um, uh, things you could also mention in connection with that if you want to are um, maybe you've got a sign up on the website, uh, yeah. maybe you've got a website, well maybe you've got a website which I think you have, and, and how does the sign up work on that? And also, um, I mean, a lot of authors will have heard that that the list, their email list, although it's extremely old school, is a massive asset. Um, even amongst the age of social media. So I wonder if you could just kind of say a couple of things around that as well. Yeah, so the mailing list is really important. And when you've got one book, it doesn't feel like it's very important. It feels like you're just building up this list of people uh, to talk to occasionally. But when you launch books two, three, four, and five, you will understand how important it is to have um, a set of fans out there who are guaranteed, a percentage of them are guaranteed to buy your book on on launch day and launch week uh, to get you going. Very, very important to kick that Amazon algorithm into noticing the book and giving it a push as well. So how do you get people on there? Yes, website, I have a website. You can sign up to learn more information or I can't remember. I don't think there's a giveaway on there because I don't have a lead magnet to give it to people. Just one book at this stage. Um, it's on the Facebook page and my Twitter bio. I think there's a link there. None of those three don't really bring in a lot of contacts. You know, why would people necessarily apart from in my particular instance, I guess other authors interested in, in, in how I'm doing might join. But the big one that works is at the back of the book. If people get to the back of the book, you know what it's like when you finish a book, you feel quite, you know, at that point you're you're feeling maximum fondness for the author having yeah. finished the book Definitely, most of the yeah. time. It's very rare you read a book and you probably won't get to the end of it. 
yeah. you don't like it. So you're feeling fond of them. You're feeling like you might want a bit more from the book. You find yourself reading the back cover or in the old days or, or, or the notes about the author. So what I have on the very first page is the two air accidents that occur in this book. Here are the crash reports from them as an additional extra. If you're interested in knowing a bit of detail, mm. detail and I spent a very fun afternoon um, forging these two 1960s board of inquiry <laughs> summaries uh, with an old typewriter font and aged them and then photographed them. And I they go out as a PDF and they're quite fun to the point where quite a few people emailed me and said, I hadn't realised it was based on a true story until the end. And I thought, it's not. <laughs> they're just, uh, <laughs> they look quite convincing, but they're um, they're not. Yeah. I made them I up. I mean, that's, that's, that's good. That's, just, that's part yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. And it gives me, and it gives me the emails to write to people. So people sign up, they get that yeah. delivered in email one. Email two is now one that says they're not real, by the way, <laughs> uh, just in case you're wondering. And email three is a bit about the, new, the next book. So that's all written it in. And my email address, you know, I get 250 sales a week. I'm getting 100 sales a month. I'm getting 100 signups to my main list, which is brilliant. So one in three people are are clicking that. Um, so that's strong. So that's a really important thing to do. So when I come to launch book two, yep. a working title at the moment uh, hasn't even been thought of, but the, I'm about 40,000 words through the first draft, um, that main list will come into its own and, and give me a start. And is book two... Um kind of the continuing adventures of is it same context same time same sort of place or it's so it's set three years before um oh, okay. so i want i know because i'm now marketing for fuse books we we market a series uh three coming up to four series now for other authors and i've learned very quickly that the best way to the best you know you talk about whether you have standalone books whether you have series serials, serials yeah. where you basically have to read them in order series like the James Bonds, you could read them out of order, although many people do series and say, no, you really need to read them in order. But the best way of doing it commercially is to have a genuine series that you could pick up any one of them and read, and it doesn't matter. So that's what I want these books to be. So it'll be, although it's set three years before, it has no direct impact on the events of the final flight. It just happens to feature the American exchange pilot who's in the final flight uh, working in in Salisbury at that yes. time it's his story from three years before when he had a brush with um uh, the Soviet Cold War era came to land on his doorstep in Edwards Air Force Base in California also okay. slightly commercially um you know the American audience it's yep. difficult to sell an REF book to an American audience but I'm hoping yes. that uh, one set in Edwards uh, which I know quite a bit about as well because it's my dad's you know it's you know my dad's colleagues and half of them are American in Edwards so yeah um, yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying that. That's good. Um, just to do a little bit of um, some definition. So you mentioned the term lead magnet. Yeah. Just then. Some some people listening to this will know what you mean, uh, but for, for those who don't, could you just tell us what a lead magnet is? Yeah, so it's a bit of jargon, isn't it? So a lead magnet is something that somebody will sign up to your mailing list in return for. So classically, someone like Mark, who has 20-odd books now, he'll actually give away one book. So his number one in the series, he will give that away for free. And that is effectively a lead magnet. So um, he'll run a Facebook ad saying, meet John Milton, the new uh, Jack Reacher, or something like that, and get this book for free. And they click on a page, and they give their email address, and they get delivered the book um, through various methods, whatever method they want. And Mark then has their email address. So that's why it's called a lead magnet. And he's, he also, I got my idea for the board of inquiries at the back of my book from something Mark did, which is he came up with uh, 
a, a classified personnel report on John Milton, his character, which you can get if you sign up at the back of his books, uh, which I thought was a really good idea. And um, so that's another lead magnet. That's what we mean by that. It is a bit of jargon though, yeah. But once you know, you know, don't you? So that's good. Yeah. Um, okay. So you've got a fair amount of knowledge about trends in self-publishing. Um, and we'll talk about the self-publishing podcast in just a moment. But uh, but I wanted, wondered if, with your knowledge, um, what are the most important things that a writer, and perhaps in particularly an independent writer, needs to think about when they're starting out? When you know what are when they they kind of perhaps just a little bit behind where you are. Maybe they're working on their first book, got some ideas, doing the doing the manuscript, getting it towards publication. Yeah, I mean, the, the two things, first of all, write the best book you can. And, and it is painful, that, uh, that process. Don't be afraid to rewrite it um, and and read a lot in the genre, all that stuff that you get for you know, writer's advice. But assuming that you have done that, the book is as good as it's, you, you can make it. And it does fit the genre well. I mean, that's the other thing is, is mm. you know, people want to write a sort of literary fiction book that's the sort of book they pick off the the um, Booker Prize shortlist. That's fine, but if I'm honest, you probably won't write the quality of um, of Ian. Uh, is it uh, the Tony guy Ian McEwen or whoever you know? Yeah, yeah. The, um, and, and it's a hard sell uh, afterwards. But if you're writing a genre fiction book, just make sure it is it is meeting the tropes and expectations of the audience. Oh. Uh, for that so that's the first most important thing because if you don't have a good product the best marketing in the world is not going to really do very much and secondly um mailing list is is the most important thing you do with that first book what i'm doing now is building up a mailing list ready for the future and so you want to get used to the idea of running some really simple low level um ads with with a lead magnet with something at the back of your book or or something maybe a short story that you can write that that'll give uh give that away i wouldn't focus on too much i wouldn't focus on paid amazon ads at this stage i wouldn't focus on on expensive facebook ad campaigns but using services like bargain booksy free booksy hello books which we run these organizations to try and get more readers familiar with your first book and familiar with you will pay dividends whilst you do, as I said earlier, the next best thing you can do for your marketing is to write your next book. So that's really, and that's, I wouldn't, you know, there's a lot of stuff available um, marketing wise, and there's lots of webinars uh, on, on different tactics and so on. Um, but I wouldn't get overly uh, distracted from the job of writing your next book at this stage because a lot of the tactics you will be learning as you've alluded to Andy are applicable to series and not a book a standalone book by itself which is a good thing for writers because you don't have to be overwhelmed by all this marketing stuff to start off with you can gradually ramp it up and it is easy to get overwhelmed when there's so much stuff going on Uh, you mentioned free booksy and some of those other email lists and again some people might be thinking so what's that what's that yeah (laughs) Can you give us just a quick kind of heads up on on what those what those services are and why you might want to? Get yeah. Them? So when you have your book for sale, um, obviously there's different ways of putting your book for sale. Um, a lot of people put it on Amazon and be what's called exclusive with Amazon, which means which when you load your book up, you tick a box that says, "Would you like to enrol this in something called KDP Select?" And people might be familiar with Kindle Unlimited. You pay a subscription, or was it eight quid a month, something like that? 
and you get access to thousands, tens of thousands of books, which people have enrolled, the authors have enrolled in that. You can read them as part of that subscription. Um, or you can not be enrolled in, in that and you can make sure your book's available in other platforms like Kobo and Barnes and & Noble and Apple, Google Books, etc. But where, however you've got it online, there's some manipulation with the price, which goes back really years to how Woolworths used to operate here in the UK. And um, you know any sort of commercial entity knows that dropping a price to 99p from 399 will see a spike in sales. You yeah. might not make money, from that because it costs you a bit sometimes to promote that but it gets people reading your book and will pay dividends in the future so we can do that as well and that's what bargain books you free books in hello books and services like that are about basically you get a slot on an email that goes out to a dedicated list um, sometimes a million people yeah in the case of bookbub an organization based in, in cambridge in america uh eight uh, 20 million people i think they have on their list now right. And you, you, if you're lucky enough to get a slot on their email, you pay, in their case, several hundred dollars, free, free books, you maybe a hundred dollars, something like yeah. that. And for a few days, when their email goes out to their list with your book included on it, you drop the price. You agree to drop the price to make it a bargain for them or make it free. And free works really well. Make it free for a weekend. Mm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so th- those little, that's quite a good tactic in those early days. I would do that at the back end of your writing process of book two, closer to when you've got uh, somewhere for the audience to go, uh, especially if they're going to join your main list, they might go, go a bit cold or forget about you if it's a year before your next book's out, But um, which is, of course, my problem. But yeah, that's those services. Okay, that's great. So yeah, I mean, in a way, they're testament to the power of an email list because these guys have massive email lists and they? they can yeah. segment them by genre and, and do a bunch of stuff around that. Um, so we we're coming to the end of our, our conversation now. We've we've mentioned briefly things like self-publishing podcast and Fuse Books. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the podcast. Uh, you know, you're one one half of this podcast with Mark Dawson and and Fuse Books and what you guys do. Yeah, the podcast. I mean, funnily enough, we're talking in in cynical terms and these expressions like lead magnet. The podcast, which is called the self-publishing show, is a lead magnet for our courses. That's what it is. And um, so we have we interview people every week. Uh, we've just had our 300th episode, uh, which is actually going out this Friday. So what's that? Five years nearly um, of episodes. And uh, we have a big audience. We've had 2.7 million downloads of the show. And a percentage of those people join the SBF community, join our Facebook group, and at some point might purchase a course. Now, they might not, which is absolutely fine. In fact, the vast majority won't ever pay for a course. But that's how this type of marketing works. Mm-hmm. Um, I've enjoyed it. Well, it is a bit of a treadmill, and you'll know this from doing a, a podcast. Yeah, you know, I have to do one or two interviews a week and then record the wrap on a, on a Thursday or Friday with Mark. Um, but it's been a really interesting process for me to learn a lot about books, learn how different authors approach things, mm. ask the sort of questions you're asking of me and hearing a, a myriad of different views and getting marketing advice from people. So I've enjoyed it from that aspect. And, uh, you know, we're pretty high up. If you, if you, type in self-publishing into Apple iTunes, sort of it's called now. Uh, we are normally the first return on yeah. that. We're not on YouTube or other platforms, but we are within the podcast sphere, yeah. which is good. Um, and Fusebooks is simply, you know, when I when I first joined, I thought we wouldn't ever do publishing because the whole point of our organization, the self-publishing form, is to encourage people to publish themselves. But the best will in the world, some people just don't want to. 
they just don't like it. Uh, they're not very good at it. Um, or, or as I say, they don't want to. And for those people, an indie publisher that does a fair, equitable 50-50 split on either profits or revenue um, is much better prospect, probably the only option for them, because the trads, even if they got a trad deal, they'd end up with, what, 5 6 7 8% um, of the cover price, which is, you know, you have to sell a huge amount of books to make any money. So uh, we saw these starting up. Jasper Joffe in London was the one really caught our eye doing doing really well with these crime thrillers, lovely guy as well. And I said, I've been badgering Mark for a couple of years and we need to do this because we've got a community of people who are always asked by people, could you publish my books for me? I don't want to do all the marketing. Um, and we started when um, parents of one of our authors got in touch to say that he'd tragically died uh, and they didn't know where to start with marketing. And they, we had a conversation with them. So I said, look, let's, let me start my publishing company and you can be the first series if you want. And they were very, very happy with that. So we published Robert's Stories, Ancient Origin series, about to publish another new book from him, actually, which his parents dug out this manuscript he wrote, obviously, uh, before he died. So that's that's yeah. gone pre-order today, actually. And we've taken on two other authors since then. I'm about to take on a third, uh, sorry, fourth uh, author. And, yeah, we split the profits 50-50. So we invest in advertising. We never ask the, the authors never pay a penny, uh, which is a bit of a red flag. I think if a publishing company want money from you, you shouldn't you shouldn't go be going down that route. But we just have a contract say, we'll pay all the advertising costs. We'll do the covers and everything for free. The only costs we share are the advertising, which we take off the profit. So, again, even if we ended up losing money, we would never ask the authors uh, for that back. But every month so far uh, it's been profitable and we've seen right. seen you know, massive spikes massive ramps up in um because we're able to do that with our our knowledge uh, base on on uh, advertising and so the authors have been very happy with the checks we send them every month i mean that does sound like a fantastic deal for authors really it's very telling i think that what you said there like people come to you and they say i don't know about i don't know about publishing can you do the marketing for me yeah, <laughs> which is like because in my mind I'm thinking, what would interest me as an indie author in that in that offer would be here are people who really know how to do the marketing. That's you know in a sense the mechanics of publishing a thing, an ebook or a or a or a you know an actual paperback or something, are not that difficult. I don't think compared to the the kind of labyrinth that is the marketing piece. Yeah. Yeah, I, no, I agree. It, it is. I think it is a good deal. And we get overwhelmed with submissions, like probably every publishing company. Too many that yeah. I can even wade through, and we've employed people to go through them before. But um, so that, that is the difficult aspect of it. It's me either not replying or replying negatively to people, which I hate doing. But we have hundreds and hundreds of people who would like us to take them on. But you know, it's not. You know, you do. You are giving up more. You're actually giving up more than fifty percent of the revenue. So you think if we sell five thousand pounds worth of books. Of somebody in a month we've spent two thousand or one thousand five hundred probably is a better proportion on advertising that leaves three thousand five hundred to split between us so they've paid for half the advertising uh, and they get half the profit if they were doing it themselves obviously and they did it to the same degree of success they would have the whole five thousand to themselves so it genuinely has to be somebody who cannot do it who who's you know adamant that they are quite happy with the figures the way they're going to work and and we have that conversation very seriously with people and say, look, is this right for you? Because what we don't want is for them a year down the line thinking, oh, I could be doing this because we think they could be doing it. Right. That's what we say. We advocate mm -hmm. that. Um, 
But the people we've taken on, I mean, the case of Robert died, his parents were in their 70s, there's no way they were going to do it. And we could see the figures just dive bombing, obviously, without any active marketing. Uh, with our next author, he was making less, he was making $22 a day across five books or six books, which we took on. Mm. And I now cut him a check for several thousand pounds a month. Um, so it doesn't really matter <laughs> that we're taking half yeah. of it. He's still quids in on that. So that's the t- type of person it has to be for us. If someone comes to us and say, look, I'm making, I'm making two or 3000 a month, but I think I could make more. We wouldn't take them on because right. you know, uh, we can't double that or guarantee to double that. No. Uh, but if somebody's making pennies and I've got another author now, I was a little bit shocked to look at their figures. They're just, you know, there's, there's nothing coming in for them at the moment. So it's everything for them to hand it over to us. Um, we also do put something in the contract, which is a reversion clause for them. And if we don't at least double what they were doing before they came to us, um, then they can get out of the contract. So they only have to be in the contract if it's making money for them. It was a sensible decision. Okay. Um, I sense you're you're going to have like roving packs of authors camped on your lawn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Are you are you are you actually is Fuse Books open for business at the moment? Then are you still looking? Do you still want people to kind of contact you, or are you? Kind um, of, is it just a bit? So the correct answer is you always say yes because you want that pool of uh, of, yeah. of talent to choose from. Um, and yes is probably the broad answer. Specifically at the moment, I've got a new author in W Sainsbury who won the Kindle Storyteller Award two years ago. Got his books, uh, which are going live next week. I've got a new author I'm in negotiations with at the moment, and we've we actually we've agreed a very simple negotiation based on what I've just described, um, and his books, and he's got a lot coming in. Each one of those needs to be formatted, maybe retitled, covers done. So, and I run it effectively by myself. I mean, I've got I've just enlisted a bit of help here and there. So, I won't be in a position to look at any sub- submissions for at least a couple of months. Okay. But we we are. In the in the long term, definitely we want to grow. Uh, it's the only way the company will will, will grow is if we take on more authors. And, and just for people listening, so it's it's October twenty twenty one at the moment. Um, so that sounds like maybe the start of the next of next year, yeah, or something like that. Uh, I, is there a before people get too excited? Is there a, is there a kind of website with any kind of like these are your, these are the guidelines or this is these are the kind of people you want to you do want to hear from because you said like some people you don't want to necessarily hear from because you may not be able to do so much for them yeah i don't know if we do have those those guidelines we have so far we've stuck more or less to the thriller um uh thriller genre uh but there's no reason we did toy with taking on um paranormal romance yeah let's have a look uh in fact it does say on our pad on our, our website we are accepting submissions for paranormal romance i think that was <laughs> that was mark um just watching <laughs> watching some of the paranormal romance authors yeah going yeah, up well, and up and up that's a pretty hot genre isn't it? yeah well, romance seems to be pretty pretty brisk yeah, yeah. but but okay. actually everyone we've taken on is is in the thriller genre one way or another so um uh, you can ignore that about paranormal romance and you can fill in the contact form anyway and submit something. And there's a there's brief bit of information there, what you need, a th- you know, paragraph synopsis and so on. So I think probably like people listening to this might be listening in a couple of months or a year or two. So probably the sensible thing is to just go and check the website and see what you guys are up to and what, what you're accepting. So what is what is the website? It's fuse it's fusebooks.com and okay. um and yeah, you, yeah, you'll find um you'll find a submissions tab at the top. 
And just in case anyone's not heard of or not subscribed to the self-publishing podcast, how would they find that? I know it's fairly easy, but tell yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. The self-publishing show, we rebranded it uh, about 100 okay. episodes ago. Um, yeah, so self-publishing show, if you Google that, it'll come up. Uh, actually, we have a tab on our, our main website at selfpublishingformula.com. There's a tab for the podcast and you can okay. get to every episode. We're on YouTube, every YouTube channel as well. So, And all the usual places where you find a podcast. Yeah, yeah and, and I know you, you kind of modestly described it as a lead magnet, but there's a lot of useful stuff that you can get just from hearing you guys comment on what's going on in the in the in the industry at the moment and and in in listening to the interview interviewers that you have on i think thank you yeah yeah i hope i mean we it has to be useful otherwise it wouldn't work as a lead magnet. and I, i'm describing it somewhat cynically like that even if we we worked out that it wasn't bringing people in to buy the course like we wouldn't stop doing it because it's a part of our community it's it's a part i actually think rather pompously as well that the podcast that we record that you record are capturing a bit of history in publishing, which is in a hundred years time, they will look at this era we're in now as the big change in publishing. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and we're, right. we're capturing and, and, you know, making historical uh, uh, documents of, of that happening. Yeah. Yeah. People could be, people could be analyzing at these podcasts in a hundred years time. Couldn't they? <laughs> they could be historians will be pouring over them. They, they, they will indeed. <laughs> so, um, we should finish now, I think. But is there anything else you want to want to say? I mean, anything else you want to tell us about? Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. Um, you've mentioned these courses. What other what what courses are these? What what yeah. do you guys offer? So we do we do a range of courses, but two two big ones. Um, so what we wanted to do with SPF is to have a place where there's lots of free information available, crowdsourced from each other. Yeah. But also we we bring in experts and have webinars. All of that stuff free, um, and we have some books published as well. But Ultimately, we have two paid-for courses to take it to the next level, which are obviously properly curated and, and um, lots of work and time and effort goes into them. And one is called Self-Publishing 101. It's the foundation course. A lot of what we've talked about tonight, what you should do when you get towards the end of your manuscript to set yourself up for commercial success, to get everything in place, how you do that, the various choices you'll get to make. And the next one is a more advanced one. It's called Ads for Authors, and it really focuses on paid ads for authors. So Facebook ads, Amazon ads, BookBub ads are the main ones that uh, we go into detail. And each one of those has its own course within there, and they're very detailed. Um, they're not particularly cheap. I mean, actually, compared to other industries, they are cheap. Facebook ads courses, if you go online, you'll find you easily ask to pay a couple of thousand dollars for a Facebook ads course, uh, but ours is less than a thousand, something like eight, nine, seven, something like that. And that will be open for business again in January. The 101 course is $497, about 350 pounds, um, uh, sort of representing the fact that it's it's for people who are just starting out. But uh, <clears throat> the idea of these courses is they pay for themselves very quickly um, by giving yeah. you that edge ahead and that's one thing i always think that anybody listening to this podcast anybody thinking about the marketing side has already given themselves a significant step up on the vast majority of people who are writing and uploading to amazon who don't do any of this who don't think properly about it don't research it properly um so yeah investing in these courses and other people do courses as well uh, i think is it should you should feature that as part and parcel of your future if you want to be successful at that at some point investing in, in the education side of things and i guess if people people wondering about the value of them could would do well to think about the fact that you guys who created these courses are actually using your knowledge 
with fuse books with your publishing operation to make money and and you kind of you're kind of guaranteeing the people to the people that you sign up that you will make money for them so this, yeah we have to be careful kind of we do have to be careful about the word guarantee because you know okay. you, yeah, you, you do need a good product and we can't yes. and also people you know people put bad covers on books and they argue vociferously that they really like the cover as if that's important and there's something we can't do for some people yeah. who, despite having but we have hundreds now of of case histories of people who've taken the course and done great things with them and we've got people who've become millionaires as a result of that it's not an exaggeration in fact we've got no, no, we, sure do, we do these video testimonials got pages of them which you can find on our website um of people yeah. saying you know i've written seven books eight books i was working as an accountant and now i've just bought my mum a house because mark showed me how to you know untap the commercial potential of them yeah. so yeah it's um uh, yeah and absolutely the fact that i can do this for authors who aren't making money using what mark's taught me is exactly as you say it's a testament to the fact they do work okay that's a great moment to stop then <laughs> excellent james thanks very much for your time it's been great to talk to you and um i'll let you go brilliant andy thank you very much i really enjoy it so yeah do Good. drop me a note and let me, let me know when it's going out yeah i will do indeed yeah all right cheers thanks andy bye 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 thank you for listening to the creative writers toolbelt podcast You can find out more about the podcast at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you can also find details of the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook, which takes all the best advice and insights from the early episodes of the podcast and distill them into one volume. I hope this episode has been useful to you on your writing journey. If it has, please do subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving a review as well wherever you downloaded it. Thank you for listening to this episode and goodbye.